The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. Good to have you all with us here this morning. Those watching live, we appreciate you joining us. This morning, we are going to do another edition of our Matthew 24 series. Now, let me tell you why. Um, we are looking, we're in our series on John, 1 John, we're in chapter 3, looking at verses 4 through 10. Now, if you read those verses, you might know why we're not doing them today, all right? I spent all of last week studying, praying, banging my head on the desk, trying to figure out what in the world, you know, these verses are saying. And uh, I had Bob Cruikshank, he was feeding me information, you know, doing research for me, sending me all this stuff, and I'm trying to read through it all. And I really think that by the end of the week, I'm thinking, I think I started understanding what these verses mean. And so hopefully next week we're going to jump into those verses. I mean, they just basically say, whosoever is born of God does not sin. Yeah, so, okay. So you all might be finding out next week, none of y'all are Christians. <laughs> no, that's not it. But we'll, uh, please, let me ask you, be praying for me for this week, next week. That uh, it's, a, it's a complicated text, but I really do think, I, uh, like the end of the week, I was like, aha, I think I see this. So I'm kind of looking forward to that. All right. So right now, though, we're going to look at Matthew 24, another installment here. And uh, I want to open our study this morning with a quote from Nisbeth. He writes this, There is nothing more delightful to an honest mind than truth. Nothing more important than religious truth. In the Holy Scriptures, a complete system of the latter is revealed. But it has unfortunately happened that though prejudice and indolence from whence has arisen implicit faith in the opinion of others, and sometimes from a misguided piety. Truth has been concealed from the view of mankind, and Christ and His apostles have been made to speak a language derogatory to both reason and religion, and directly contrary to fact and experience. I think this is perhaps no more evident than when you look at what some have done to the teaching of Christ in the Olivet Discourse. They make Christ speak a language derogatory to both reason and religion and directly contrary to fact and experience. Now, as we study this chapter, we have to keep in mind its context. All right? We have to keep in mind the disciples' question, and this 24, Matthew 24, is basically the Lord answering the disciples' questions. Now, at the end of 23, the Lord says this See, your house is left to you desolate. What does he mean by their house there? He's talking about the temple, all right? That's the focus, all right? Now we jump into 24. Yeshua left the temple. Okay, second reference here to the temple. And was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. So he's leaving the temple. The disciples point to the temple, the buildings of the temple, and he answered them. You see all these? What are all these? The buildings of the temple, okay? Now, this is not complicated, but listen, it gets people miss this, all right? That's what he's talking about. Do you not? He says, truly, I say to you, all right? 
There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. He's talking about the temple. That's the subject. They're looking at it. They're pointing to it. He said there won't be left here a stone. It's not, in other words, this temple is all going to be destroyed. Now, the disciples that he's talking to, they respond by saying, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when. Well, these things, what do you think that these things here is? The destruction of the temple, okay? That's what we're talking about. Subject hasn't changed. When, they said, when? I mean, he just told, this thing's going to be destroyed. When? When will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? We can put the disciples' question this way. When will the temple be destroyed? What will be the sign of your presence in power and glory as Messiah and the end of the Jewish age? Now, in verses 4 through 14, Yeshua tells them that many things will happen prior to the parousia that should not alarm them. One thing he tells them in these verses is that the gospel will be preached into all the world before the end comes. Now, we saw in our last study of Matthew 24 that according to Scripture, the gospel was preached to the world before AD 70. Now, in verses 15 through 20 that we want to look at this morning, Yeshua gives them a sign that they can't miss. All right, this is a sign. A lot of people make a lot of things signs that aren't signs. The Lord said, This is a sign, and they're not going to miss it. They're going to know that his parousia has happened. They're going to know it's the end of the Jewish age. They're going to see the temple destroyed. How are they going to know this? He says in verse 24, chapter 24, 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Now, if you have heard any end-time preaching, I'm sure that you've heard of the abomination of desolation. Alright? Now, the popular version, not the truth, but the popular version goes something like this. Alright, remember, this is the popular version. All events written in the book of Revelation are future to us events. Okay? They're still looking for them. They're future to us. Even though, when they were written in the first century, the Lord said He wrote them so with these you would know what things would shortly come to pass. But they're still future to us. Okay? According to the popular view. And seven years before the second coming, all Christians on the earth will be secretly whisked away to heaven. All right? Automobiles driven by Christians are suddenly driverless. Planes will be pilotless. Teachers are teaching school and students will be missing. You've seen the pictures, right? Up, up, and away. Then there they, we just all just sucked up into the sky. All right? You've seen that. Dead saints are going to come out of the graves at this time. Then's going to come the great tribulation. See, we get to get out of that. Christians don't have to deal with that, right? They all get away. Then the tribulation and the things written in the book of Revelation, are poured out on this ungodly planet. The Jews then are going to build a new temple in Jerusalem. Now we talked about this recently, right? The Jews building a new temple. There's a couple barricades to that, right? The mosque that's there on the temple, you've got to get that out of there first, which means a holy war. Okay, once it's out of the way, then you've got to build a new temple. Then it's got to be destroyed again. You know, it's a lot of stuff has to happen. All right, still in the popular view. During this time, the beast of Revelation 13 will arise. The beast will enter the temple at Jerusalem and proclaim himself to be God. 
He'll then put into the temple a statue of himself, which they say will be the abomination of desolation. Okay, so according to the popular view, the abomination of desolation is something in our future. Obviously a long way off, because like I said, things the temple's got, the mosque has to be taken down, the war fought, new temple built, new temple destroyed, all that stuff has to happen, alright? Walvard, commenting on Matthew 24, 15, says this, Such a temple will be rebuilt. <laughs> and these prophecies literally fulfilled like Jerusalem's destruction in AD 70 wasn't literal enough, right? That wasn't a literal thing. That was a, just a, you know. He says, if upon this revival of their sacrificial system, such a future temple, remember, all right, now Walvard's writing this around 1980. A future temple is suddenly desecrated. It would constitute a sign that the nation of Israel of the coming time of great trouble just preceding the second coming. Now, is that what Yeshua is talking about in our text? Something future to us? No. He's talking about something that would happen in His generation. Matthew 24, 34 makes it very clear. This generation. Every Christian I know, including myself, because I know myself, was taught the false idea about the second coming of Christ from their earliest days. We have read books on it. We have seen movies on it. We've seen pictures depicting it. I was a youth pastor for many years. Did a lot of rallies. Did a lot of things, you know, trying to win youth to Christ. And nothing was more outwardly effective than showing these movies of the tribulation. You know, the end time things. I remember one time we had this place full and I showed that movie and I got up and they gave an invitation I mean, that whole place ran down front. I said, stop, stop, go back and sit down. I don't think you understand. Talked to them a little bit more, gave an invitation, boom, they all came running down. I mean, I don't want to go through the tribulation. It just was, it'll scare people right into heaven, right? No, it was, it was crazy. Well, we've all seen this, though. We all, this is a, a system we're familiar with. You know, it, it scare tactics are used often to supposedly bring people to Christ. So, really, most Christians have to unlearn some unbiblical teaching before they can even understand the truth of Scriptures. You know, it's like we've got blinders on our eyes and we can't see them. So, I guess our first task is to get an understanding of what the abomination of desolation is. Now, to the Jews, an abomination was anything that involved the worship of false gods in sacred space. All right, keep that in mind. Abomination, worshiping false gods in sacred space. All right. 1 Kings 11.7 says, Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Moloch, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mount east of Jerusalem. So he's building these abominations to these false gods. All right, Solomon is doing this. Why? Because he had too many wives and his wives turned his heart away from the Lord. That's what the Bible tells us, men. So stick with your one wife and be happy, okay? All right. Ezekiel 5.11 says, Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord Yahweh, surely because you have defiled my sanctuary with your detestable things and with all your abominations, therefore I will withdraw, my eye will not spare, and I will have no pity. Now this 
expression, abomination of desolation, is a Hebrew expression meaning an abominable or a hateful destroyer. To the Jews, the abomination of desolation, which Daniel speaks about, Daniel mentions this four times, this brought to the Jews' minds the Assyrian ruler Antiochus Epiphanes. Anybody ever heard of this guy? Antiochus Epiphanes. This is who, when the Jews hear this, that's who they thought of. Now, according to Jewish history, recorded in the Apocrypha, you know what the Apocrypha is? That's the 13 books that the Catholics have that we don't have, okay? In between the old and the new, all right? Uh, there's some good history in there. We don't believe they're inspired. That's why they're not in there. But according to the passages in the Apocrypha, the passages in Daniel were fulfilled during the intertestamental period. First Maccabees, it's one of the books in the Apocrypha, records how Antiochus Epiphanes, who ruled Syria from 174 to 164 B.C., he came against Jerusalem, and what he did was what the Jews called the abomination of desolation. Antiochus had surnamed himself Epiphanes, which means the God made manifest. So he was a humble ruler, okay? He is the God made manifest. It was his goal to stamp out the Jewish religion. A royal edict was proclaimed suspending the practice of the Jewish religion on the pain of death. He even turned priest's rooms and the temple chambers into public brothels. In December of 168 B.C., the temple was dedicated to Zeus, and over the altar was placed a statue of Zeus which resembled Antiochus. A pig was sacrificed on the altar itself. This was a filthy abomination in the sight of the Jews. Now Josephus, a Jewish historian, said of Antiochus Epiphanes, he also spoiled the temple and put a stop to the constant practice of offerings, a daily sacrifice of expiation for three years and six months. He compelled the Jews to dissolve the laws of their country and to keep their infants uncircumcised and to sacrifice swine's flesh upon the altar. So he was doing all he could to just really make them mad, all right? Well, he says this abomination of desolation, the Lord tells us, was spoken of by the prophet Daniel, okay? So we want to know what he's talking about. We have to go back to Daniel and find out what Daniel had to say. This expression is found four times in the book of Daniel. It's found in Daniel 8.13. Then I heard a holy one speaking. And another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary to the host to be trampled underfoot? So here he's talking about the transgression that's going to make desolate. We see it also in 9, 26, and 27. These should be familiar verses to you. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off, and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Now this passage clearly refers to something which is to follow 
the coming and death of Messiah. It's to something connected with the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans. Kyle and Delich, in their commentary on Daniel, say this, The interpretations of Daniel 9, 24-27 may be divided into three principal classes. Number one, most of the church fathers and the older Orthodox interpreters find prophesied here the appearance of Christ in the flesh, His death, and the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans. Okay, that's how most see it. Now, then he goes on to say the second one, the majority of the modern interpreters, on the other hand, refer the whole passage to the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, that's a ridiculous view, and I'll hopefully share with you why in a little bit. Okay? Daniel 11.31. He says, Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offerings, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. One more time in Daniel, in chapter 12.11. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away, and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Now, according to the Jewish history recorded in the Apocrypha, these passages were fulfilled in the intertestamental period. Many today see these verses in Daniel as a reference to Antiochus. Here's the problem with that. Look at what Yeshua said. When you see the abomination, who's the you here? His disciples. Well, if it happened already in the intertestamental period, how is he telling them they're going to see it? I mean, that's kind of simple, I think, there. All right, he's talking to them. When you see this, you guys that I'm talking to, go back to the beginning. Who asked the question? The disciples. He's answering their questions. When you see this, Dr. John A. Broadus said this, It is evident that our Lord interprets the prediction in Daniel as referring to the Messiah and to that destruction of the city and temple which He is now foretelling. And His interpretation is authoritative for us. <laughs> yeah, it is. This is what the Lord said. You're going to see it. So if they're going to see it, how did it happen before they even were born? I agree. Yeshua bypassed any declared fulfillment in Antiochus, and he interprets the prophecy as relating to the events at the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, many commentators find an allusion to the standards of the Roman legions in the expression, the abomination of desolation. The eagles were objects of worship to the soldiers. We know that Josephus, we know from Josephus that the attempt of a Roman general, Vitilius, in the region of Tiberias, to march his troops through Judea was resisted by Jewish authorities on the ground that the idolatrous images on their ensigns would be a profanation of the law. So the Jews had a fit. You can't bring that stuff in our country. You know, back because they worshipped that image. All right? And to them, it can't, can't happen. B.H. Carroll writes this, Pilate, at that time Roman procurator, sent from Caesarea, the seaport of the country, on the Mediterranean Sea, a legion of Roman soldiers and had them secretly introduced into the city and sheltered in the Tower of Antonia overlooking the temple. This Tower of Antonia was connected right to the Jewish temple, kind of overlooked it so the Romans could look down in the temple concept and kind of keep an eye on everybody. You know, how you doing? They could be ready to run out there if they had to and calm things down if there a riot or whatever happened, all right? He sheltered them in the Tower of Antonia overlooking the temple and these soldiers brought with them their ensigns. The Roman sign was a straight staff 
capped with a metallic eagle, and right under the eagle was a graven image of Caesar. Caesar claimed to be divine. Caesar exacted divine worship. And every evening when those standards were placed, the Roman legion got down and worshipped the image of Caesar thereof. And every morning at the roll call, a part of the parade was for the whole legion to prostrate themselves before that graven image and worship it. The Jews were so horrified when they saw that image and the consequent worship that they went to Pilate, who was at that time living in Caesarea, and prostrated themselves before him and said, Kill us, if you will, but take that abomination of desolation out of our holy city and from our neighborhood of our holy temple. So you kind of get the idea that they knew what they were talking about you know, when they're saying this abomination of desolation is connected with the Romans and these images. Now Matthew says they will see this standing in the holy place. This doesn't necessarily have to refer to the temple only. Jerusalem itself was considered the holy city. We see that in Matthew 4-5. Then the devil took him to the holy city. That's Jerusalem. There's no question there, okay? Daniel 9.24, 70 weeks are decreed about your people, Daniel's people, which are Jews, and the holy city, Jerusalem. Okay? Revelation 11.2, but do not measure the court outside the temple, leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city 42 months. All right? Now Mark talking the same passage from Matthew says this in Mark 13.14, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, okay, meaning the same thing as Matthew standing in the holy place, when you see it, it's, it's not supposed to be there. But then you know the desolation is near. Luke really clears this up. All right, The three synoptics are all talking about the same thing. You go to Luke 21.20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Now, by reading the sur surrounding verses here in Luke, you can't deny this is a parallel account to Matthew's Olivet Discourse. And parallel accounts can't have different meanings. Well, by combining Luke's statement with secular history, it is clear that Cestius Gallus and his Roman army were the abomination of desolation. Alright, now you've got to get that in your head. The Roman army, that's the abomination that the Lord's talking about. That's the abomination of desolation. This was fulfilled in AD 66 when the Romans surrounded the city of Jerusalem to take siege of it. Chrysostom wrote this, For this it seems to me that the abomination of desolation means the army by which the holy city of Jerusalem was made desolate. Okay? That's, that's what he saw. Augustine writes this, Luke, to show that the abomination spoken of by Daniel will take place when Jerusalem is captured, recalls these words of the Lord in the same context. When you shall see Jerusalem compassed about with an army, then know that its desolation, therefore, is at hand. For Luke very clearly bears witness that the prophecy of Daniel was fulfilled when Jerusalem was overthrown. Augustine saw it. Spurgeon writes this, This portion of our Savior's words appear to relate solely to the destruction of Jerusalem. As soon as Christ's disciples saw the abomination of desolation, that is, 
the Roman ensigns with their idolatries stand in the holy place, they know that the time for their escape had arrived and they did flee to the mountains. Albert Barnes writes, The abomination of desolation means the Roman army and is so explained by Luke in 21.20. The Roman army is further called the abomination on account of the images of the emperor and the eagles carried in front of their legions and regarded by the Romans with divine honors. So the Roman armies were the abomination of desolation to the Jews. Not only because they consisted of heathen men, uncircumcised, but because of the images of their gods that they carried with them. The images and idols were always an abomination to the Jews. Now our Lord tells His disciples that when they see the Roman army encompassing Jerusalem with their ensigns flying, and these abominations on them, they should know that its desolation is at hand. That's kind of common sense, right? Guess what? Our city's surrounded. We're, the desolation is near. And that's what he's telling them. This was therefore Christ's explanation of the abomination of desolation. The Roman army, heathen with their heathen images and standards, ready to sacrifice to idols on the temple altar, working the de de desolation of the Jewish temple in the city. You know, it's amazing the things that people come up with what the abomination of desolation is when it seems so clear from Scripture. You, know, you just go to Luke and you're like, okay, that makes it pretty clear right there, right? Now, Matthew adds this, let the reader understand. This is designed to draw the attention of the reader to Daniel, to the passage's true meaning. When you shall see the abomination which make desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, where it ought not be. In other words, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, that's the sign that its destruction is near. This makes a lot of sense when we take the word of the Lord to the disciples literally. We don't have to make it be some other time. It's really clear. So when you see the abomination of desolation, he's talking to his disciples. He told them when you see it, not the Jews in general, not some Jews sometime in the future, generation, how would the disciples see it if it was in their future? This is going to happen in a couple thousand years, but when you see it, wait a minute, how are we going to see it? Well, how do we get around that? Oh, the Liberty Commentary figured out a way, okay? Here's, here's how they get around that. You must be taken generically, okay? Since the disciples have not lived to see this take place. So you is generic. So when, they, so when you... Meaning, whoever reads this sometime out in the future, whenever. But it doesn't mean anything to you that I'm talking to, because you is generic. And it's not you, because this is so much nonsense. You see what people do to get around this stuff? I mean, it's absolutely crazy. All right, so Yeshua said they'd see it. The Liberty Commentary says they didn't. Who are you going to believe? Take your pick. Okay? <laughs> Let's stick with the Bible, Okay. The Bible says nothing about a temple being set up in our future. He's talking about an event that would happen in his generation. Again, Matthew 24, 34. We'll get to that verse. But the predicted abomination of desolation mentioned by Yeshua is a thing of the past. It was fulfilled in the Jewish war in AD 66-70, just like the Lord said it would be. That's why He's warning them about it. Now, some people want to argue, well, he says here, surrounded by armies. Plural. 
right? Not army. So it couldn't have been the Roman army that did this, right? Well, again, that's a brilliant argument. If you read the historical accounts, you'll find out that Jerusalem was destroyed by armies, plural. Syria sent 25,000 soldiers. Arabia sent 6,000 soldiers, all which were under the command of Rome. It was a multinational coalition of armies, and Rome was in control. They went in there and destroyed. Now, Philip Schaff, any of you know, you know who Philip Schaff is? He wrote The History of the Christian Church. Huge volumes, okay? I mean, I don't know how many volumes are in this set, but it's a lot, all right? <laughs> it's a big set. He gives a vivid picture of the destruction of Jerusalem. He says this, Titus, according to Josephus, intended at first to save the magnificent work of architecture as a trophy of victory, and perhaps from some superstitious fear. And when the flames threatened to reach the Holy of Holies, he forced his way through flame and smoke over the dead and dying to arrest the fire. But the destruction was determined by a higher decree. His own soldiers roused to madness by the stubborn resistance and greedy of the golden treasures could not be restrained from the work of destruction. At first the halls around the temple were set on fire, then a firebrand was hurled through the golden gate. When the flames arose, the Jews raised a hideous yell and tried to put out the fire, while others, clinging with the last convulsive grasp to the messianic hopes, rested a, de rested a declaration of a false prophet, and God, in the midst of the configuration of the temple, would give a signal for the deliverance of the people. The legions vied with each other in, in feeding the flames, and made the unhappy people feel the full force of their unchained rage. Soon the whole prestigious structure was in a blaze and illuminated the skies. It was burned on the 10th of August, A.D. 70. That's interesting. That fits in with the Feast of the Lord, okay? And the Fall Feast, right in that time period. Now listen to what he goes on to say. He goes, that same day of the year on which, according to tradition, the first temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Schaff goes on to say, No one, says Josephus, can conceive a louder, more terrible shriek than arose from all sides during the burning of the temple. The shout of victory and the jubilee of the legion surrounded the wailing of the people, now surrounded with fire and sword upon the mountain. And throughout the city, the echo of all the mountains around, even to Perea, increased the deafening roar. Yet the misery itself was more terrible than this disorder. The hill on which the temple stood was seething hot and seemed enveloped in its base to the, with a sheet of flame. The blood was larger in quantity than the fire, and those that were slain were more in number than those who slew them. The ground was nowhere visible. All was covered with corpses. Over these heaps, the soldiers pursued the fugitives." Yeah, and Schaff goes on to say, the Romans planted their eagles on the shapeless ruins over against the eastern gate, offered their sacrifices to them, and proclaimed Titus emperor with the greatest acclamations of joy. Thus was fulfilled the prophecy concerning the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place. All right, that's Philip Schaff from his history. He was fulfilled the prophecy 
concerning the abomination. And they're all, these men are not preterist people, okay? But they're connecting this with the destruction of Jerusalem because they're smart enough to see that, all right? The abomination of desolation is a past event. It was fulfilled in the events of 8066-70. It was a, a sign for the disciples that Jerusalem is about to be destroyed. And for them to flee from Jerusalem in order to escape the great tribulation which was coming on the Jewish people. Frank Gaberlein in the Expositor's Bible Commentary says this, Although many commentators hold that Matthew here portrays not just the fall of Jerusalem, but also the great tribulation before Antichrist comes, the details in which verses 16-21 are too limited geographically and culturally to justify that view. So he goes, no, no, see, this is just about Jerusalem, so that can't be what the Bible talks about. Because the Bible's talking about a worldwide tribulation, worldwide destruction. That's what they make it. But if it was worldwide, the following verses make no sense. Because the Lord says, if you're there, well, go to the mountain." Why? It's not happening in the mountains? No, that's why I go there. It's happening at Jerusalem. This is the great tribulation. It's happening to Jerusalem. That's what the book of Revelation is all about. The destruction of this city that God calls a whore now because it's walked away from Him and He's destroying it. He is shutting it down totally. In the next verse He says, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now if it's not a local judgment, what good is it going to do you to flee to the mountains? <laughs> That's true. You're not in Judea anyway, so I guess it doesn't affect us. See, they want to, I mean, just read the next couple verses. Let those where? In Judea. Go to the mountains, because it's happening in Judea. But see, he says, oh, it, it can't be, you know, this is too geographically narrow to be the great tribulation. Yeah. <laughs> When the Roman armies were seen surrounding Jerusalem, this was the sign to get out of the country as soon as possible. They were not to be concerned when he said, when you hear wars and rumors of wars. They were to be concerned when they saw Jerusalem being surrounded by armies. Because this was the sign, get out of here, get to the mountains. Now the phrase in verse 15, standing in the holy place, must mean the city itself. For by the time the Romans had actually desecrated the temple, it's too late to flee anywhere, okay? The exhortation to flee is given to those in the adjacent country as well as to those in the city. And here's the thing, people. The temptation would be the opposite. When you see an army coming, where do you go? Run to the fortress. Jerusalem was a fortress. Run in there. We'll be safe there. The Lord said, no, 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 don't. Don't do what you think is natural. Go the other way, okay? Get away from there. Flee to the mountains. And while the Christians fled, the Jews in general rushed right into the city, resulting in a horrible bloodbath because they got caught in there. The church historian Eusebius, who lived from 270 to 340, he wrote the only surviving account of the church during the first 300 years. He writes this, the whole body of the church at Jerusalem, having been commanded by a divine revelation given to men of approved piety, there before the war, removed from the city 
and dwelt at a certain town beyond the Jordan called Pella. So he says, well, this happened. Okay, these people, the Christians, realize, hey, this is what the Lord talked about. Let's get out of here. Josephus gives us an account of the Roman army pulling back from the battle at Jerusalem for no apparent reason. You know, Josephus is a Jew. He's not a Christian. Okay, so he's telling, he's explaining this account and he doesn't get it. Because it doesn't make any sense. Because the Romans came, they surrounded the city, they're trying to get the city. You know, they didn't just attack, they built a wall around it. They blocked them off from water, from food. People inside are starving to death. They're eating each other. I mean, they're doing horrible things inside there because they got them cut off. Well, all of a sudden, the Roman armies left. And the Jews are looking around. And so they got all bold. They started chasing them, you know. Why in the world did they leave? And they're all baffled by this, all right? Josephus says this, It then happened that Cestius was not conscious either how they besieged despaired of success, nor how courageous the people were for him. And so he recalled his soldiers from the place, and by despairing of any expectation of taking it, without having received any disgrace, he, he recalls his soldiers. He just, come on guys, we're stopping this fight. I need you to come back. He retired from the city without any reason in the world. Josephus is saying, this makes no sense. Why would he do this? But when the robbers perceived this unexpected retreat of his, they resumed their courage and ran after the higher parts of it, hinder parts of his army and destroyed a considerable number of both their horsemen and footmen. Yeah, they got brave. Hey, they're leaving. Let's go get them. William Whiston, the translator of Josephus, has this in a footnote. He says, There may be another very important and very providential reason be here assigned to the strange and foolish retreat of Cestius, which if Josephus had been now a Christian, he might probably have taken notice also. And that is that according to the Jewish Christians in the city, an opportunity of calling to mind the prediction and caution given them by Christ about 33 years and a half before that, when they should see the abomination of desolation, the idolatrous Roman armies, with the images of their idols in their ensigns, ready to lay Jerusalem desolate, stand where it ought not, or in the holy place, or when they should see Jerusalem any one instance of a more unpolitic, but more providential compassed with armies, they should then flee to the mountains. By compelling with which those Jewish Christians fled to the mountains of Perea and escaped his destruction. So he's explaining it. He said, Josephus was a Christian. He probably would have got this. There was a reason this all happened. John Gill, writing, says this. It is remarked by several interpreters, and which Josephus takes notice of with surprise, that Cestius Gallus, having advanced with his army to Jerusalem and besieged it, on a sudden, without any cause, raised the siege and withdrew his army when the city might have been easily taken. He just backs off. By which means a signal was made and an opportunity given to the Christians to make their escape, which they accordingly did, and went over to Jordan, as Eusebius says, to a place called Pella, so that when Titus came a few months after, there was not a Christian in the city. Now, I would question that, not being a Christian in the city, 
You know, the Lord told them, this is what you're supposed to do. Some of them got caught in there. They didn't escape. They got caught in there. Well, then all of a sudden the Romans leave and the Christians go, aha, and they ran to get out of there. And so many writers will say, well, there wasn't a Christian left there. Well, if you go to the book of Hebrews, he talks about forsaking you know, Christ, turning your back on Christ, apostasy. And there's no longer a sacrifice, but a fearful judgment. And I think some of the Christians stayed in there, contrary to the Lord's words, and they were crushed when that happened. They were killed, they were burned up, they just suffered the judgment because they didn't obey the Lord. Now, Foy Wallace in his book of Revelation says this, It's a remarkable historical fact that Cestius Gallus, the Roman general, for some unknown reason, retired when they first marched against the city, suspended the siege, ceased the attack, and withdrew his armies for an interval of time after the Romans had occupied the temple thus giving every believing Jew the opportunity to obey the Lord's instruction to flee the city. Josephus, the eyewitness himself, an unbeliever, chronicles this fact and admitted his inability to account for the cessation of the fighting at this time after a siege had begun. Can we account for it, he says? We can! The Lord was fighting against Jerusalem. Zechariah 14.2 For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished, half the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. The Lord was beseeching that city. God was bringing these things to pass against the Jewish state and nation. Therefore, the opportunity was offered for the disciples to escape the siege, as Jesus had forewarned, and the disciples took it. So said Daniel. So said Jesus, so said Luke, so said Josephus. All right? <laughs> That's true. You know, this is what, you know, people look at this and historians look at this and they go, well, we, that makes no sense. Well, it does if you understand the words of the Lord. That's what he told them to do. Let those who are in, the, in Judea flee to the mountains. History records this happened. Again, for no known reason, Cestius Gallus suspended the siege ceased the attack, withdrew his armies, and at this time, the believers had the opportunity to flee as the Lord had instructed them. Get out of the city. Verse 17 and 18, he says, Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. In other words, I don't care where you are when this happens, get out of there. Don't, make it, go, don't go home and pack your bags, kiss your relatives goodbye, get out of there, quickly. And history records for it. For no known reason this happened. All right? Now, the idea here is that when the armies came against the city, they just had to hurry up and get out of there. Because delay might mean captured. It might be meaning you're killed. You get caught in the city and you're destroyed, so make it quick. In verse 19, he says, And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Women who were pregnant or nursing babies, you understand, you're going to have a difficult time fleeing if this is your condition when this is happening, right? Verse 20 says, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. Again, it's going to make it a lot more difficult. All right, they're going out of the city, they're staying in caverns, they're staying out in the wilderness, and if it's winter time, it's going to be a lot more difficult. And not on the Sabbath. Why not the Sabbath? 
Well, he's talking about the Pharisaic man-made rules they had that you know limited how far you could go on the Sabbath, what you could carry on the Sabbath. So this is going to make it a lot more difficult. People are not going to help you. People are going to resist you because you can't break the Sabbath law. You can't go that far. Well, those laws are in effect. So this obvious took place when those strict Pharisaical laws were still in place. Well, the instructions Yeshua gives to His disciples about what to do in view of verse 15 are so specific that they have to be related to the Jewish war. All right, It's foolish you know, to take these and say, oh, that's too general, as Gabriel, I think, said. It's too general to, to think that. No, that's if you're in Judea, <laughs> go to the mountains. Get out of there. It's very specific. It's about Jerusalem. If these verses are speaking of some future second coming Christ, none of these conditions he's talking about are going to matter. He spoke these words to his disciples, and history records that all these things took place AD 66 to 70 in the Jewish war. These verses have nothing to do with a future to us second coming of Christ. Nothing. In spite of all the evidence, biblical and historical, some see the abomination of desolation as referring to an event in our future. Our future. Because they cannot accept the Lord return in AD 70. They say this event has not yet happened. Some do, this, some do see this as fulfilled in AD 70. I mean, you look at the verses and they're like, we really can't get over this, but we can't accept the Lord came, so here's what we'll do. Yes, that was AD 70 was a fulfillment, but there's another fulfillment also. Okay? In the future. This is called the double sense theory. Yes, that was it, but it's coming again. All right? <laughs> yeah, that's the no sense theory. It really is. Now, the proponents of this theory contend that the events surrounding the fall of Jerusalem were a type of the final eschatological events which they believe are still future. For example, William Hendrickson, in his commentary on Matthew, says this about the abomination of desolation. When shall this destruction of Jerusalem and the temple be? Jesus answers it now, but in such a way that the answer suits more than one event in history. How did the Lord do that? So the way he answered, they were like confused. There's probably a couple events there. The double sense advocates will say, yes, these verses speak of the destruction, but, you know, no, there's more than that. One of the leading dispensationalists shows why the abomination of desolation spoken of by Matthew cannot be taken in a double sense theory. John Walvoord in his commentary says this, This portion of the Olivet Discourse is crucial to understanding what Christ reveals about the end of the age. The tendency to explain away this section or ignore it constitutes the major difficulty in the interpretation of the Olivet Discourse. In the background is the tendency of liberals to discount prophecy and the practice of some conservatives of not interpreting prophecy literally, which is exactly what Walbert does. He doesn't interpret it literally. He sees it as a yet future event. Okay, so if this prediction means what it says, it is referring to a specific time of great trouble which immediately precedes the second coming of Christ. Right again. Yeshua was speaking to His disciples. Wouldn't it, it would be a literal interpretation to them. The sign was to them. The Lord returned in that generation. He goes on to say, as such, the prediction of the great tribulation is the sign of the second coming. And those who see the sign must be living in the generation which will see the second coming itself. True. 
He goes on, according to the interpretation of G. Campbell Morgan, which relates to this, which relates this to the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, and the view of Alfred Plummer, which relates to the second coming of Christ as fulfilled in the first century, are unjustified interpretations if the passage is taken seriously. Why? If you're going to take the passage seriously, you need to see it fulfilled in the first generation of the people he was talking to who he said it'd be fulfilled to. How do they get literal? We've got to take this literally. Okay, then. He's talking to them. You see the blinders people? Wolver doesn't see a double sense here because he realizes that have to mean multiple second comings. But it couldn't happen then. On the double sense theory of interpretation, James Stuart Russell, who was a preterist, says this. Far be it from us to make God speak with two tongues, okay? Or to attach a variety of senses to His Word in which we ought rather to behold the simplicity of the divine author reflected in a clear mirror. Only one meaning of Scripture, therefore, is admissible. That is, the grammatical, in whatever terms, whether proper or tropical, and figurative, it may be expressed. In other words, we just got to take the Lord and what He says. can't make a bunch of meanings out of it. Dr. Owens has this to say about the double sense theory. If the Scripture has more than one meaning, it has no meaning at all. And it is just as applicable to the prophecies as to any other portion of Scripture. Canon Ryle writes this, I hold that the words of Scripture were intended to have one definite sense, and that our first object should be to discover that sense and adhere rigidly to it. I believe that as a general rule, the words of Scripture are intended to have, like all other language, one plain definite meaning, and that to say that words do mean a thing merely because they can be tortured into a meaning it. It is a most dishonorable and dangerous way of handling Scripture. I would agree. Because what would keep anyone from applying this double-sense theory to any part of Scripture? Let's say, yeah, the Lord came and He died back then, but I think He's going to come and die again. That was just a type. You know, somebody in our age has to come. How ridiculous and how far do you go with this? After many predictions about the kingdom of God being taken from the Jews... And about Jerusalem's destruction, the Lord told His disciples that not one stone would be left upon another. And they said, when? And now He's saying, you're going to see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. Guess what? This is going to be fulfilled then. It's all going to be destroyed. The disciples again, when, will be, when is it going to happen? And He told them when? In your generation. In answer to their question, Yeshua tells that the, the Gospel is going to be preached to all the world, all the nations, and then the end will come. Then He tells them that they not some far distant generation, would see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. He told them it would be a sign to them of His presence and the end of the Jewish age. He said it would all happen to their generation. And it did. They saw the abomination. And when they did, they fled to the mountains. Because they trusted Him. They believed His Word was true. We need to begin to take the words of Scripture seriously also. Yeshua said He would return in that generation. He's talking to people of that day. He's telling them specifically, you will see these things. And we just can't seem to believe that He's saying what He's saying because it doesn't fit our narrative. 
Look what the Lord said. Yeshua answered, My kingdom is not of this world. What? What world is it of? A different one? If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this realm. That sounds pretty clear. Right? This is not of this world. If, if I was setting up a physical worldly kingdom, my servants would be fighting, but they're not. It's not what we're about. Look what he says in Luke 17. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. I wonder what that means. Well, I don't know. What does the word observe mean? You're not going to see it, okay? It's not going to go, oh, there's the kingdom. It's over on that hill. Let's go over there. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. It is a spiritual kingdom. The Lord tried to make that very clear. But despite the clear words of Yeshua, many today are still looking for a physical kingdom. Listen, the Jews of the first century rejected Christ because they wanted a physical deliverer to deliver them from Rome. The futurists today reject the fact that the Lord came in AD 70 because they want a a physical kingdom now on this earth to live and dwell in. It's not a physical kingdom. It didn't come with observation. It's here, people. We live in the kingdom of God. He said it was coming. They would see it. They saw it. We're not going to see it. Okay? Let's pray. Father, I thank You this morning for the opportunity to look at Your Word again. Father, I don't know. It just seems so clear to me. I pray you'd open the eyes of your people, Lord. May they begin to take audience relevance seriously and realize you're speaking in a very limited context to a limited group of people at a limited time factor. Give us eyes to see the truth of your word, Lord. Father, I pray for next week as we go back into the first John, Lord, an extremely difficult passage. Please, Lord, give us understanding. Help us to see the truth that you would have us to. In your name we pray. Amen. <laughs> All right, questions, comments? Gary? Um, I can't remember all my questions, but one of them, um, Cessius Gallus was, began the siege yep. and then left and Titus ended it. No, I think it was the other way around. I think that Titus was the one who actually began the siege. And then, you know, he got called back, and then Cessius Gal. I'm not, I, that's, that's kind of confusing to me right now. My view of history is that, not. That makes a little more sense because you're saying they, they worship Cessius Gallus. Something happened in Rome, okay? And so they, they came because. You know, whether I think it was Titus, and something happened in Rome, so Titus had to go back to Rome, so he pulled the troops back, so he'd go back because there's a political shakeup taking place there in Rome. All right? And Cestius Gallus came back and finished the job, but the Christians had an opportunity to get out of Dodge. You know? And they're all, like I said, they're all scratching their heads, like, what does this mean? Well, you know, <laughs> many people did understand what it means. If you understood the words of the Lord, hey, that's pretty cool. The Lord said, get out of there, and now they have an opportunity. You know, because the Christians that were in there probably thinking, man, I wish we'd have listened to Yeshua. When we saw this army, we should have ran. 
and they're all mad. I told you, and the wife and husband, wife are arguing. <laughs> I told you we should have gone. And the husband said, you know, they're going back and forth. And all of a sudden, look, there's a gap. Let's go. And they just booked out of there and took, went off to Pella. And history records this stuff. Um, Anybody else? The Solomon, who was so wise, yeah. um, built, did he build two temples for uh, Chemosh and um, whatever? Or were they all in a temple that was already existing? They, they built them on the hills. You know, they worship wherever. The Lord told them you're supposed to worship at the temple where I place my name. But they kept setting up high places. This was, you know, worshiping wherever. But most of the high places, they were worshiping Yahweh. They weren't supposed to be doing it there, but they were still worshiping Yahweh. But Solomon, like I said, he, you know, the Bible makes it specific that kings weren't supposed to multiply horses or wives. And he did. Okay? And the Bible says his wives turned his heart away from Yahweh. And I'm thinking, this is the wisest man. And he, you know, didn't listen to the Lord. And back then, you got to understand, wives were a political thing. You know, you wanted to bring a nation together, hook up some nations. You know, we got. I'll marry, you know, this woman, and then we'll have a treaty. You know, have a union between us and all this stuff. And but a thousand? I don't know. That's that's kind of crazy. That's kind of well, no, the That's that's the thousand together. All right. He had three hundred wives, seven hundred concubines. But that's you know. Let's say he spent a night a night with each woman. Well, it would. I'll see you in three years in some woman. Okay, I'll, I'll see you again in three years, honey. Hang on, you know, keep the food warm for me. It's just it's hard for. <laughs> oh, it, it is crazy, but I mean, his wives turned us because he's why he's marrying foreign women and they have foreign gods and they're bringing the foreign gods and they're saying, "Let's worship." And then you know how someone it just boggles my mind how someone's supposed to be so wise. He says, I'm going to worship these false gods who aren't the gods of creation, who didn't create this stuff. You know, these gods who worship Yahweh, I'm going to worship them. How foolish is that? Yeah. You know, I guess God allowed two other people to take over Solomon's position. Well, the kingdom was split right after that, right. And that was a judgment. That was a judgment on God. God said, you know, because of this, we're splitting the kingdom. And sure sure enough, right after Solomon, his son, you know, the kingdom was split. And, uh, and people are still waiting for it to be reunited. But you know what it was reunited? Pentecost. Okay? When God brought all the nations, you know, back. And we are part of those nations that God brought back, the Gentiles, to be part of his kingdom again. 